Hello and welcome to the MC podcast. Our guest today is Colin King, an expert in munitions clearance and weapons intelligence. Colin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Talk to us a little bit about what role you are working in today. Uh, my role at the moment is as the chief intelligence officer of a commercial company called Phoenix Insight Limited. Now, the role that you're working in today is at the end of a fairly lengthy career in explosive ordnance disposal and other aspects of munitions clearance. Tell me a little bit about the journey that got you to the place you're in now. It starts from about the age of 10, learning about chemistry and playing with explosives being awarded an army scholarship at the age of 16 and then going straight into the army at the age of 18. I did my bomb disposal, my EOD training in 1986. So this is my 38th year of EOD. I trained in all the disciplines, uh, including improvised explosive device disposal, conventional bomb disposal, high-risk search. And I went straight into operations from my very first year. Um, working in the Falcon. But from there, I was lucky to be involved in a, a lot of conflict and post-conflict zones, gained a great deal of experience. So very early on, I took a team, the first team to train the Afghans as the Russians were leaving Afghanistan. And that gave me a very good introduction to Russian weaponry that not many people had at that point. That led me into the world of intelligence and took me into a slightly different direction of military intelligence involving EOD as well, which gave me a fairly unique mixture of operational and intelligence work. In the early stages of your explosive ordnance career, you came up against certain sorts of munitions. How were those munitions laid out? What did you experience? My first, really, first experience was in the UK with just unexploded ordnance remaining from wartime and testing. But very soon I went out to the Falklands. That was immediately after the, the Falkland Island conflict. And there we had Argentinian minefields laid to patterns, but there were still booby traps. There was a lot of unexploded ordnance lying around. After that, I went from one conflict zone to another, seeing a vast variety of layouts. A lot of pattern minefields, mines were the thing that were perhaps most common, but more and more we started to get engaged with submunitions. They become became a bigger and bigger part of the EOD scene and eventually became a big influence. What sort of challenges did you experience when you were working in these different environments? What did you have to overcome? I think one of my biggest challenges in the early days was that I was still very young and I looked young. And when I was put in charge of a scene or put in charge of a unit, I had that credibility gap to overcome and indeed an experience gap because I was learning. And I found also very early on that what I'd expected to be a fairly small and niche subject was actually a, a huge subject and a, a great deal to learn, which I continue to do to this day. What sort of people have you found become interested in the work you do? Who is it that's most likely to get involved and work in your sector? I think there are a lot of people that, that work in this sector and for all sorts of reasons. I think the people that I identify with most are the people that are really passionate about it. It's not just a nine to five job. I, I think anyone in any walk of life that's really good at what they do is passionate about it and sees it much more as a, a vocation than just a job. And so they're the people who read into it, who study it, who live and breathe it outside working hours. 
that's the kind of person that I've always been with the Odeon, and I think those are the people that I identify with most. With that in mind then, was there people that when you were developing your career in the early stages that were inspiring to you, the people that sort of formed mentorship roles? Yes, it's funny because when I went into EOD in 1986, it's relatively quiet. Northern Ireland was rumbling on and there were various clear-up operations of ranges, but the people to admire were actually still the World War II heroes, which were still around at that time, people who had been awarded high gallantry orders for, for the most extraordinary work, while most of the people in the regiment that I was serving with and of, of the hadn't done an awful lot of operational work. And then suddenly, from that time onwards, we ramped up from one conflict to another and people gained a great deal of operational experience. But in the early days, the people that I met were World War II service heroes and they really were heroic some of the things that they had done when you started out teaching was very much a hands-on process do you think teaching what you do can still be an operational sort of hands-on approach or is there different ways of learning now clearly digital and distance learning is a much bigger thing now but we're talking about a very practical subject and the hands-on element is still critical i think one of the changes is that at the beginning of my career, I was one person in one location dealing with an item or a situation and a limited team. And now that outreach can be much greater. We can train remotely. We can deal with more people, more items in more places by using the power of the internet. But it remains a very hands-on business. And I would always be very reluctant to be giving remote instructions in any form to someone who is trying to do an operational job. It's a practical business. You've seen firsthand the effect that post-conflict munitions can have. What's your experience of the environments that you've inhabited? How are people affected? I think it's now fairly widely accepted that the post-conflict effect of weapons is far-reaching. It denies ground, it demoralizes, it, it instills fear. It's a barrier to reconstruction and to normality of all sorts. I think that wasn't realized quite as much as it is now in, in the past. And so I, I believe that the job that the EOD community do it is really vital in post-conflict recovery. The challenges that people face in post-conflict scenarios are many and varied. What do you think is the significantly most personal impact that you've witnessed? I have an enduring memory of visiting a house in Kosovo where basically a lady was living there, her family had been killed, and she wasn't even sure if she could bury them in the yard outside her house because she dare not step outside the door. It can't get more visceral, more personal than that, really. But whether it's a farmer trying to access their field or seeing all their animals having been killed, you know, it's a very real, very personal experience. What effect does doing nothing about this problem have? I'd say to some degree it's not an option to do nothing. But if we as an EOD community do nothing, the lesson that I've learned is that people will take it into their own hands and very often they will lose those hands or lose their lives. 
trying to do the job that, that we need to be helping them with. And so we need to provide that help in many different ways because there are never enough EOD assets to go around in an immediate post-conflict emergency phase. If we do nothing, people will try and help themselves the best way they can because they have no choice. But as you work in the civilian sector, there's been dramatic changes in the way that we view both ourselves and our environment. I wondered how much climate change is impacting your work. Climate change is interesting in that when I first took over the clearance of the Falkland Islands, and that was 1986, soon after the conflict, it was a very wet and windy place. And my company has been overseeing the clearance of the Falkland Islands, a successful clearance that took 11 years. And I regularly then visited to look at residual risk, to look at the state of the mines. And it was quite shocking that by the end of that period, in the last couple of years, my visits there were accompanied by sunshine, dry, very nice weather. And that has become a semi-arid environment. And that, in a very short time, in the space of 30-something years, has changed significantly. As far as effects on weapons go, there probably aren't any particularly significant effects, but we do see, for example, falling rivers in Germany, exposing munitions for the first time, and perhaps things that have been underwater for a long time, changing their nature, the characteristics as they dry out. What improvements have you noticed in processes and procedures over the years, or is there anything that you've particularly focused on to improve in the process of what you do? I think regulation in its widest sense is the thing that's changed most. In my early days, we, we wore very little in the way of protective equipment, not even eye protection very often. That's crazy when you think about it. D-miners regularly had accidents. There were fatalities left and centre in insurance programmes. Now injuries and fatalities are thankfully pretty rare. And that's largely because we have good procedures, the mine action standards and so on that employers are very responsible about how they conduct their training, their quality management, and so on. I think that's probably one of the biggest changes in my career, and that's called for the better. Great training is incredibly important, but a powerful tool in the work that you do is knowledge and intelligence about how scenarios, techniques, and also the munitions you're encountering change. How important is intelligence now and moving forward? Intelligence is vital in both senses of the word. The individuals that are conducting this work need to be able to take a, a broad view of what they're doing. They need a very wide skill set that ranges from interaction with people to technical capabilities. But in terms of technical intelligence, yes, of course, that's incredibly important. The ability to correctly identify weapons, to understand their effects and to understand the risks involved and how to control and apply controls to those risks is vital. And that's one of the reasons that my company has developed an open source intelligence tool for exactly that reason. How well is information passed around in your community? I think we're getting better at sharing information. One of the barriers to that is classification in the military system. A lot of weapons intelligence is almost automatically classified. And it's one of the reasons that this term open source intelligence, OSINT, has come to the fore recently. The realization that people on the ground need to understand, need to have access to technical detail, technical intelligence. And that's where OSINT really comes into its own. 
instead of just influencing one team in one place. This now gives the option for a centre like ourselves at Phoenix to provide technical intelligence to people all over the world. In conflicts such as Ukraine, the open source sharing of information is incredibly important. What impact have you seen it directly on the work that you've been doing? There are a lot of different agencies working in Ukraine at the moment. The emergency services, the army, EOD, police, EOD, transport, EOD. You've got NGOs, you've got contractors, you've got other European forces getting involved in one way or another. And new weapons have emerged, Russian weapons that had not been seen on the battlefield until recently. And so the ability to share data on those weapons has been incredibly important. A lot of that has come through social media and our OSINT system has captured a lot of that. And we've been able to process it, analyze it, push it back out in different forms to turn that information into intelligence through analysis. Now, your organization is one of the many that are pioneering open sharing and gathering of information and intelligence. I wondered how an organization like yours is working with or is trying to integrate artificial intelligence in the work you do. Can you see it improving what you do or changing what you do? Yeah, artificial intelligence has radically changed what we do. In the days when I started in military intelligence, the problem was not being able to get access to the information you needed. Most of that came through classified sources, signals intelligence, human intelligence, and so on. Now, the problem is completely reversed. Now it's finding the needle in the haystack and the right needle in the haystack. There is information everywhere. Some of it's right, some of it's wrong. Most of it is utterly irrelevant. And that's where artificial intelligence, machine learning, and particularly natural language processing comes in to take a mass of unstructured data and structure it to put it in front of an analyst that knows what they're looking at. And that analyst, that subject matter expert, is a vital part of it. Do not want to be relying on a machine. And the machines still need training by people that know what they're doing. And that takes time. It's not an instant fix. But our OSINT system relies entirely on machines being able to process millions of events per day uh, and distill from that the really important things. And that's a total reversal of the old days where you were desperately trying to find a piece of information that you could analyze. Now, the incredible physical and practical nature of what you do means that you've had to train many people. Over the years, how many people do you think you may have enabled to clear munitions? It runs into hundreds. It's very difficult to tell. We still continue that work. Personal improvement is incredibly important, especially with regards to the challenging environments you work in. What have you had to work on and what have you improved in what you do over the years? I think bringing a more structured approach to what we do has been very important. Being much more systematic and for the practical work to sit under an umbrella of quality management and to some degree things like documentation, which my favorite thing in the world, but I accept the need for it. And bringing a systematic and thorough approach is one of the big changes and it is part of becoming a grown-up company and doing things the right way. In your sector, what tech or innovations are you most excited about? 
We were talking very recently about artificial intelligence, and I think the opportunities there are extraordinary. The ability to take vast amounts of open source information and distill from that important intelligence, I think, is one of the biggest innovations. In other ways, over many years, I've seen all sorts of innovation come up very good science from the universities, laboratories, and actually relatively little has translated into the field. In detection, the impact of ground penetrating radar has been substantial, but a lot of detection technology has been really incremental in change. It hasn't made a step change. So other than ground penetrating radar, perhaps aerial reconnaissance use of drones and so on, not perhaps as much as you would think. Do you think that more countries will have the opportunity to become mine-free in the near future? I'm one of the school that, that rather dislike the term mine-free because I think it's a brave move to declare yourself mine-free. I think we prefer to talk about a lower impact or no longer having a an impact from mines. But for example, in the Falklands, we're very conscious that mines can and do wash up from the sea or may have been deep buried, and it would be a brave claim to say that we have cleared every mine. That's the same with most mine-affected countries. The likelihood is that there will be residual contamination, and assessing that risk and controlling that risk becomes more important. Undoubtedly, more and more countries will have their mine-affected status changed, but they do need in place some contingency for the, whatever the residual risk is. Now, the work of the Institute of Munitions, Clearance and Search Engineers is vitally important. Personally, because of your involvement, how do you see benefit in an organisation like IMSI? I think one of the great benefits within IMSI is the ability of subject matter experts to speak to one another and talk about subjects that are important, whether that is regulation of the industry, training, or about operational impact in post-conflict areas. What we have is some of the most experienced people in the world in terms of their subject matter expertise talking to one another in a cooperative frame. And I think that's extremely valuable. How do people get involved? and take part in becoming search engineers and experts in the world of EOD? Until relatively recently, I think it was very difficult for people to break into the field of EOD and search. I think that's changed, and that's a good thing. Organisations like Halo Trust, I think, are one of the first to do it, recognise that there are a lot of people in industry that had very good skill sets. These were very high-caliber individuals, that had a lot to offer that previously might have been rejected because they hadn't been in the army or another organization with these skills. And so a lot of these organizations are now taking people who have no previous experience and giving them that experience. So I think the opportunities are there and that's a good thing. It's been a great benefit to the industry. One of the reasons it's beneficial is because Actually, the military don't always do things the best way for a humanitarian context. Also, some of the real expertise now lies outside of the military. People who have worked in the field for many years 
and have a great deal more experience than the people that have maybe done one or two tours in the military. But hopefully some of those people can go on, as I did, take their military experience and then adapt it and build on it to work in the humanitarian context as well. It's inspiring the work that you and your colleagues in MC do. What do you offer members and how do you help and assist them? I think it's part of a community of subject matter experts and there's great benefit in the cooperation between those people. But I think also there's the ability to develop ideas, whether that's about regulation of the industry or contribution in a particular sector. And it it affords people the ability to make that happen where perhaps they couldn't easily do that within their own resources. There's always someone within IMTSE that, uh, that knows how to get these things done and has the connections to make it happen. Within the Institute of Munition Clearance and Search Engineers, How do you operate with your colleagues and what services do you provide and how do you assist them? My particular role is really on the technical side. So if people have questions or doubts about technical issues to do with weapons, intelligence, structural weapons, neutralization of weapons, exploitation, that's the sort of thing where I can help because uh, whether it's my system from Phoenix or personal experience, Generally, there's some contribution we can make to, to questions of that sort. What can be done within your community to make it a stronger organisation and a stronger sort of body to help your members? It's all about cooperation. It's all about the ability to marshal those resources and use other people's expertise to cover the gaps in your own knowledge. I think one of the problems is that We all need to earn a living. Phoenix is a commercial organisation. Many of the other members of um, IMCSE are commercial. And uh, there has to be some incentive to give away what you have and what you know for the greater good. But that's also got to reward the individual and the company as well. And that's sometimes a bit of a dilemma, how to balance those two. Colin, your career in the military spanned several decades. Give me an idea of some of the different conflicts that you worked in. I started off post-conflict in the Falklands. I went then during the Gulf War. That was literally during the four days of hot ground war. And then immediately afterwards in the post-conflict clear-up. I took the first team to train the Afghans as the Russians were pulling out of Afghanistan, where I got exposure to Soviet weaponry for the first time. Some new weapons have not been seen. The Bosnia and the Kosovo conflict I was involved in quite heavily during the wars and after with a number of trips over to to former Yugoslavia. Iraq during the Iraq war, back to Afghanistan and many of the other conflict zones that host conflict areas around the world. Colin, give me an idea about the different types of conflict environments that you've witnessed. How does the activity that you partake in change depending on those scenarios? There's a huge range from the clearing up of training areas across the UK to minefields in places like the Falkland Islands and Bosnia and Kosovo, Cambodia. Then things like deep buried bombs in Vietnam, the US bombs that are five, six meters underground and what the effect is of aging through to improvised explosive devices in places like Colombia, placed by the FARC, explosive easters and what state they're in now and whether they are still a risk. And then a lot of demilitarization there. A lot of countries that have, for example, illegal cluster munitions that they need to dispose of, places like Peru, Macedonia, 
countries that desperately want to get rid of stockpiles, uh, don't know what they've got or how to treat them. And then just good old abandoned ordnance, of which there are huge quantities around the world in places like Mozambique with just great big ordnance depots full of rotting weapons that present a risk to explosion. So a very wide range of scenarios, unexploded ordnance, abandoned ordnance, stockpiles, improvised explosive devices presenting very different scenarios. Colin, tell me a little bit about how you work hand in hand with other MC members and in your field of explosive ordnance disposal. Our operations take us to all corners of the earth, looking at unexploded ordnance, abandoned ordnance, and almost everything we do involves the disassembly, the full disassembly and what we call exploitation, which is the full characterization of a weapon. And at every stage of that process, there's photography, there's recording, and generally speaking, there'll be a report. Well, that becomes really vital intelligence that can be made available to the rest of the community that provides the data on different important and interesting weapons right around the world, everything from landlines up to big missiles that becomes available to other members of the community through, for instance, our open source intelligence tool. Now, there is an inherent risk in the work that you do, is it, that keeps you coming back to do what you do? The, the quick answer is a, a, an absolute fascination with the subject, coupled with uh, a perception of real need in the communities we work with. But I think it's important to, to point out that we do everything we can to manage that risk, to understand it in a very structured way, whether it's slip trips and falls on site, whether it's the danger of road traffic accidents or air flight, right down to the explosive risk. And very often it's the explosive risk that's the lowest down that, that risk matrix. But we work very hard to understand the risks that are out there and to control them in every way we possibly can. Colin, thank you very much for joining me for this episode of the MC podcast. This is Colin King the weapons, intelligence and munitions expert from the Institute of Munition Clearance and Search Engineers. Colin, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.